In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight is episode 84, where we're heading to Hogwarts and we're going to do Harry Potter. Speaking of wizards, let's say hello to my co-host, Robert. How you doing, sir? Zap. What's up, nerds? Um, going to Fantasyland, hanging out of Hogwarts. Yeah, we're doing this movie. Um, finally doing this movie for the 20th anniversary. And uh, yeah, we'll be mostly be focusing on the first movie. But, you know, whatever other thoughts pop into our brains, we'll shout out about them. There are a bunch of weird things about the series, um, and we could get into them a little bit. We'll see. Who knows where the conversation is going to take us. Who knows indeed. But you can find the show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 84. Now, we've got a little bit of news for everyone, and we're going to save some of it for after we get into the last nighters portion of the show but for our actual anarchy audience i want to let you guys know that we are working on a project with pat mcfarlane from the liberty weekly podcast and his uh, website is libertyweekly.net and we are dissecting and analyzing from a voluntarist and cap libertarian perspective the netflix miniseries wild wild country which is about an indian guru who moves his flock to the hinterlands of Oregon, and the local residents don't take too kindly to that, and they both fight over the ring of power to try to uh, uh, overtake the other uh, the other side. So it's a great example of politics dividing and backfiring on the intended purposes and uh, all the other democratic mess that results. And it's a it's a really fun uh, miniseries to watch, so I suggest you watch it. We are going to be analyzing one episode per week until we have all six episodes done. The first one released today, Sunday, July 8th. Uh, so you can find that at libertyweekly.net slash 83. And there's also a landing page on libertyweekly.net slash WWC. And you'll be able to find all of the episodes for that as they are released. And uh, they will be released on Sundays at noon central. Uh, any comment on that before we get into last, last nighter's version or portion of the show, Robert? Oh, it was just a really fun recording we did with Pat the other day. Uh, looking forward to the future episodes. Um, the, in, the discussion is really interesting. That series has just a bevy of topics to discuss and it's the fun thing is is that i don't think we're all going to agree on it it's even though we're all pretty much hardcore libertarian and cap types voluntarists you could fall on different sides of the debate so it's, it's a fun one yeah one of the great things about pat is he is uh 
going through the bar exam. So he's about to be a lawyer. And so he's got a bit more of the uh, legal perspective where we've got more of the layperson perspective. And uh, all in all, it's uh, it's really good stuff. It's a lot of fun. And, and we really enjoy uh, being on with him. So do check that out. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So let's uh, get into this show, Daniel. All right. Without further ado. Oh, 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 it's magic. Yeah, no. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters. You can find our show at lastnighters.com. And uh, we have a bit of a news announcement before we get into our discussion on Harry Potter on this episode, episode 27 of The Last Nighters. I want to welcome a whole bunch of new listeners. The Last Nighters has been picked up by a new media company called the Launchpad Media. And so several thousand people might be hearing this for the very first time. Uh, we do have an extensive back catalog of episodes. Uh, but this is the first one on the Launchpad Media. And here's the blurb about the Launchpad Media. The Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your general direction, with a variety of shows discussing news, music, movies, culture, and more from the perspective of liberty. Some are even exclusive, so you won't find them anyplace else other than the Launchpad. Find out more at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And the is important for the URL. So just wanted to make that brief announcement before we get into the Google description of Harry Potter. Uh, but while I'm pulling that up, Robert, say hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome, new listeners. Welcome to The Last Nighters. We analyze movies from a rough Bardian anarcho-capitalistic perspective for the most part, but we're also just two guys hanging out, having a conversation, and we get into all kinds of different things. Wherever the conversation takes us is where we go. But then we're also some serious critics, somewhat. I mean, we do give uh, like a score at the end, and yeah, it's uh, it's usually a good time. So check it out. You're, you're checking it out right now. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and again, you can find that at lastnighters.com, where we do real unconventional analysis from a free market perspective. And as we uh, are prone to do, we start off with the Google description. So here we go. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone came out in 2001. Fantasy action over two and a half hours long. 7.6 on the IMDb, 64% Metacritic, 80% Rotten Tomatoes, and 95% of the Google users like it. Here is the description. An adaptation of the first J.K. Rowling, popular children's novels about Harry Potter, a boy who learns on his 11th birthday that he is the orphaned son of two powerful wizards and possesses unique magical powers of his own. He is summoned from his life as an unwanted child to become a student at Hogwarts, an English boarding school for wizards. There he meets several friends who become his closest allies and help him discover the truth about his parents' mysterious death. Came out November 14, 2001, director Chris Columbus, music composed by John Williams, and a box office of nearly one billion dollars. Uh, this is the first of eight uh, Harry Potter films, and uh, we're going to focus on this one for our discussion, but uh, anything is fair game related to this, and uh, it is, um, I think, the 20th anniversary of the first book uh, release, uh, and then this is the first movie that came out a few years after that. And oddly enough, um, in the UK, it was known as uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, in the US, it was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, what, are, what are your comments so far, Robert? Well, and yeah, I believe this is the only one that was swapped, the title swap, because apparently they thought that Philosopher's Stone, I don't know if that's a thing in England, that people, more people know what a philosopher, like a philosopher's stone is a specific thing. I don't know, but I guess it's for a more generic, broad audience. You just call it a sorcerer's stone, which is totally fine. Uh, yeah, this first movie, it's fun to go back to it a little bit and see these people who are now, you know, fully on adults as, you know, these little kids in this 
kind of really saccharine sort of story. But, you know, Hogwarts is a very dark place. There's not only a bunch of evil stuff going on, but it's also just a very, it's just a very dark world that these people live in. I mean, you've got this magical school, which is apparently the best in the world. And like wizards' parents don't even think twice about sending their kids there, where you could be violently murdered at any time. Where the groundskeeper, like, apparently loves to torture little children. At one point, he talks about how he laments that he, he doesn't hear the screams of young children anymore because they used to hang people by their thumbs. And then not to mention the fact that there's, like, monsters not only roaming the whole school at any given time. There's, like, a big three-headed dog in the school. But then there's also a troll at one point. And, of course, it's not supposed to be there, but it didn't seem like there was a whole lot that it took to get it in there. And then in the forest, there are just wild monsters, you know, just roaming about. And it's not like there's a... I mean, there is, a, like, a... A wall separating sort of but it's not like there's like armed guards or spells to keep out these monsters it seems like they could just wander in at any time and eat somebody or murder somebody i don't know daniel it's um if i had a kid that was magically inclined i don't think i would send my kids to hogwarts and i think if i was i might think of myself as a bit of a bad parent um not to mention the fact that the uh the quidditch game seems to be all about bludgeoning each other and possibly killing each other i mean all you're trying to do is like knock people off their um their brooms at like 100 feet up in the air i don't know man the whole thing i mean i know it's a movie and you got to have tension and action and conflict and stuff like that but when you got like 10 year old kids <laughs> you put them in like essentially what is like a death match blood bowl and you call it a school have fun yeah a lot to take in there robert and i i tend to agree with you um i think that my kids would would still be doing the uh, the old homeschooling, even with the wizarding here. Uh, there is, um, you know, after the Parkland shooting, I saw a couple of memes, and one of them was related to the Harry Potter series, where you know they're talking about arming teachers or arming the students, and that's essentially what you have here, right? All of the staff and all of the students here have wands and they know spells and they can defend themselves. Uh, yet, oddly enough, it doesn't actually prevent uh, a lot of this violent uh, aggression. Um, but I guess you wouldn't have a movie without it. But I think in in real life, you would certainly deter people intent on doing harm if they knew that there were immediate and dire consequences of them making aggressive actions. Yeah. And in the movie, you know, it takes like a super evil, powerful wizard to threaten Hogwarts. It's not just some angry ex-student. Well, it is an angry ex-student, but it takes someone of a certain ability to be able to challenge like the might of Hogwarts. Um, I think, yeah, in this situation, if your average person like was just angry and wanted to like hurt a bunch of people, they would quickly find themselves on the business end of like a dozen or more wands pointed in their direction. So it'd serve as a, a plenty good uh, deterrence. But, you know, there are plenty of dangers at Hogwarts above and beyond, in my opinion, um, any angry ex-students. I mean, ultimately, Voldemort is the big danger. Um, at first, he's just trying to kill Harry, right, for some reason. But then ultimately, he wants like revenge on all of Hogwarts because there's that big fight at the very end in the last movie where he's got essentially an army. You know, at least it takes an army to fight the army of Hogwarts people that all come together to defend it or they're defending somebody. I don't know. Let's, let's mainly focus on this first movie. All right. So speaking of this first movie, did you find this movie to be sort of borrowing bits and pieces from various prior fantasy and fairy tale and other uh, fantastical stories. It seemed to me like this was J.K. Rowling essentially being a rap artist, taking bits and pieces and 
and uh, lyrics and riffs and things from other places and then making her own story. Uh, and I think she almost fashioned this in a hodgepodge of the story of Jesus and Star Wars. And so it's interesting that, you know, John Williams did the music for this. And it's pretty obvious. It, I, I heard the Imperial March whenever Voldemort was on screen. Um, did you did you hear that? And, and what are your comments on uh, what the overall kind of borrowing of the story is from? Well, there's definitely some Star Warsian themes, and you got your—it's it's essentially a hero's journey where you know, young kid has aspirations to do something. He's got a kind of crappy life, and he wants to do better. And then he finds a cause to get behind, and he has to train and get bettered in order to do it. The only issue that I have with that, aside from the fact that this movie is, you know, essentially half of it is set up because you have to establish the whole universe, so it's kind of slow and meandering. But eventually it does kind of find the plot. And my main issue with the hero's journey is that Harry's a bit of a, what is the male version of Mary Sue? There's like a Harry. Whoa, 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 Robert. Whoa, did you just assume? (laughs) (laughs) We can call him Mary Sue. That's fine. Yeah, I have in my notes. He's essentially worthless and useless and just lucks into uh, uh, stellar results, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my issue with Harry Potter as a character is that he's never actually really a good wizard. He he never he trains. You see him, you know, learning, going to school and going to class and whatever. But you never actually see him doing much like his friends do. And maybe his real magical ability is to be a nice person and attract good friends. And maybe that's the the moral of the story is it's about friendship and making friends in the school and that sort of thing. But as, as far as like Harry needs to learn a thing and how to do a thing in order to get past an obstacle, eh, there's not a much, there's not a lot of that. And my main problem with this movie in particular is at the very, very end, and it made no sense to me. But we can talk about that later. But yeah, I think that is a theme that runs through it, that, that Potter really just does stand around and uh, things eventually happen and he ends up smelling like a rose. But, you know, even in the Quidditch match, he's just watching for the majority of it. You know, he's not chasing the snitch yeah. around until like halfway through the match. And what is the deal with Quidditch, all right? There are actually like LARPers that do Quidditch. I think, or try to. Um, But it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. Like the game is over if somebody catches the snitch. Well, at what point is the snitch even available to catch? You know, could it, could it, it seems like this match be over in like a minute? Available right away. Yeah. So, you know. So why not just have everybody looking for the snitch? Yeah. And why, why go around beating the shit out of each other? And have these balls, the the bludgers or whatever they are, going around beating the shit out of people too. Well, it seems to be just those, those, those. There's the one main big ball with like the flat sides, and then that's just a score points. Yeah, that's the quaffle. And then you have the snitch, which is just you got the switch just flying around, which you only have one member of your team looking for for some reason, even though you find it, and all of a sudden the game's over. And then you got these other two balls, which I guess the beaters hit around with their like cricket sticks, and those ser- just seem to serve to hit into the opposing team members which you're flying around on you know broomsticks at like 100 feet in the air you knock somebody in the head and they just go flying down to the ground now they're wearing like what like wizard robes so maybe that like slows your fall but i can imagine you know some 10 year old kid 11 year old 12 year old kid gets takes one in the brain falls down breaks his neck on the ground i mean you're, you're falling down to you know the ground it seems like a very uh deathly sport and they even mention in the story like you know nobody's died in like a couple of years it's like okay so you're not gonna wear any kind of protective clothing there are no like spells to protect you so like if you fall off your broom you kind of float to the ground no you just fall crash almost die it's a uh, it's a brutal sport i don't know if i'd let my kid play it yeah i wouldn't let Daniel, my kid would you let your kid play it oh no no i mean 
my kids try to play this kind of a thing. Like they like to um, wrestle and they like to jump off the couch and they like to jump off the couch into each other so they collide in midair. And it's always fun until somebody accidentally gets bumped a little too hard. And then there's the retribution and like full on, you know, biting and fighting. And uh, the kids end up with um, with bruises uh, in various areas where, you know, bites have occurred or where they've run into things from, you know, doing a off the top ropes type action. And yeah, I think that I wouldn't allow them. I don't sanction it. They still do it, but I, I certainly wouldn't sanction it in, in a school environment either. And you, you would think that uh, they'd have to sign a pretty hefty stack of waiver forms to be able to participate in something like this. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, I don't know this world. It seems to be the real world, except it's in the wizardy world. But I mean, can you can you sue Hogwarts if your kid dies? I don't know. I, I think you're you're on your own if you send your kid to a place where like giant spiders and like trees will that assault you when you walk by and like evil people are running through the halls. And I don't know. It seems like the normal world is a lot safer than the wizarding world. Yeah, and speaking of the normal world, that's where we start off because Harry, for you know, from his mother's love, he was able to be protected when Voldemort tried to kill him as a as a baby. And Dumbledore, who by the way is not gay enough for the SJW types, um, who were happy, you know, ten years ago when it was revealed that he was gay, but now when the um, fan- Fantastical Beasts and Where to Find Him, apparently he's not openly gay enough, so they're nonplussed about that. But Dumbledore decides to put Harry with his distant relatives who are muggles, which in this world are non-magical people. And in my viewing, I viewed them as the statists, you know, uh, the uh, deniers of like actual truth. And you know where I'm going with this, right? And uh, Dudley, his cousin, is a bully and he's like a natural fit for a position of authority, undue authority over others like a cop or a prison guard. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what, the way they treat Harry, you know, he's like living under the stairs in a closet and they threaten to starve him. For a week, if he does any funny business, uh, if that makes you consider the Rothbardian no obligations to feed your child, well, that's a that's a tough question. Um, at no point does Harry ever say that he is, you know, an adult and he wants to leave. He never said that, you know, I am a fully cognizant human being and I can take care of myself. I'm out of here. He did seem to be reliant upon the Dursleys for his sustenance, and he seemed to be okay for the most part with how they were treating him. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or okay. You can indoctrinate, you can kidnap, you know, you can put a kid in a locked room. In fact, there are stories that come out from time to time about children that are essentially chained up in, you know, a, a tiny room, and it sounds like a horrific, you know, prison type situation. And this is sort of similar. I mean, there's a plot point where the Dursleys, you know, the father prevents Harry from getting any kind of mail because at first they are in complete denial that Hogwarts is even a thing, that magic is even a thing. But I'm not really clear on why were they trying to protect Harry from this magic stuff? Did they think that um, his parents were like delusional and that it doesn't really exist? But then why talk about the funny business and actually admit that it's happening? I, I The whole thing was kind of confusing and muddling to me exactly what they believed, what they were trying to accomplish, whether they were trying to protect Harry or mistreat Harry. It seemed like it seemed like to me that they didn't like Harry at all. And here's somebody offering to take Harry from them. It seemed like they would jump at the chance. Here, take this kid off our hands. We don't like him. But no, they didn't. They tried to shelter Harry from this Hogwarts stuff 
to the point where they're like, no, we're going to take care of him and keep him in this muggle world because we love him so much, even though they act like they actively hate him. So I was confused about that. Did you get a similar sense or was it all totally clear to you? Oh, no. Yeah, this this is a mess. I think that um, they were jealous or envious of him being special or, or having um, certain abilities that they were trying to suppress. Uh, and they weren't unwilling to let him go because they loved him and were trying to protect him. But I think that they were trying to maintain control of him for whatever reason, even though they didn't act like they wanted him around at all. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. But why is the big question? Out of a sense of pride that they were right and her sister was wrong? Like, we're going to show you. You guys are a bunch of crazy magic people, a bunch of weirdos. We're the normal people, and we're going to keep him normal. But if that was the case, they would have just treated him like their own child and loved him and doted on him just like they did their child. Yeah, who, by but the way. they didn't. They treated him like the, the redheaded stepchild that they hated. Yeah, yeah. And, and their kid uh, that they, what was his name, uh, Dudley? He had this huge uh, entitled mentality. He was upset that he only got uh, 36 presents because last year I had 37. Uh, so he yeah. he was a real piece of shit. But, <laughs> you know, it, sure. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, Dumbledore put him there. He placed the, him there because in the wizarding world, Harry was famous. And Dumbledore thought that, or seemingly thought, that Harry growing up not knowing that he was famous was probably better off for him. Right. And I can kind of see... Seemingly, or at least at least out of the view of the wizarding world. Like when, in the beginning of the movie, when Harry, you know, goes into that world, everybody's like, ooh, Harry Potter. You know, like they, they, they weren't even sure, you know, they even really existed, right? Like maybe there's like a legendary story that had been told and retold. So maybe Dumbledore did do a good job by keeping him out of, out of uh, you know, Voldemort's clutches or reach per se even though i guess the whole series is voldemort slowly gaining more power because at the beginning in this movie he's just a like a mask on the back of somebody's head yeah he's a parasite on quirrell yeah yeah indeed now before he gets into the wizarding world he does display some some ability before he even knows that uh that he is magical and so he talks to a snake, which is a biblical type thing. Um, the bully is picking on the snake, Dudley. And so Harry removes the glass from the enclosure and Dudley falls in. And that reminded me of the Harambe incident. So I was surprised they didn't come and shoot the snake. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the snake just kind of slithers off in the middle of the zoo. It says, thanks. Nobody seems to bother. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's fine. Nobody freaks out. Yeah, and then, uh, like you said, the, the fucking muggles kept stealing his mail. And they thought that they were past it because, you know, no post on Sunday. And the reason there's no post on Sunday is because there's no market competition in post. And I think there used to be post on Sundays and twice on Saturday, if, uh, if I'm remembering my history on this. But uh, Interesting. To get away from, from the mail, because a bunch of mail floods in, you know, through the, uh, through the chimney, which they should have realized is kind of a magical thing. Like, that wouldn't normally happen. So why they're so resistant to magic being existing when it is a part of this universe? Sure, it's part of the story, whatever. But they go out to this lighthouse on an island, and then bang, bang, bang on the door. Uh, the, the father gets a gun, and the door gets broken down, and there's this menacing figure, Hagrid, in the doorway. What is the guy doing with the gun and not using it? Like, what kind of home defense is that? 
Yeah, not very realistic one. Um, sounds like a movie type of thing to me. Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, I, I, Hagrid's breaking down the door, right? So whoever is knocking on the door, breaking it down, isn't there to sell you Girl Scout cookies. He's there to either do somebody harm or get at something that he wants. And in that case, you know, if you're not going to act yourself as a cordial, gentlemanly, voluntary human being, then you have no obligation to react, you know, in, in, in the same way. So yeah, go ahead. Blast away. But of course, that you know doesn't happen in the movie. But um, Hagrid is breaking into hand deliver the invite to Hogwarts to Harry, and there's an interesting exchange there because Vernon, the father, says that Harry can't go, and Hagrid's response is, "Well, how are you going to stop him?" And that that reminds me yeah. of, of discussions we've had where you know something may be immoral or a violation of the NAP or something along those lines. But how are you going to legislate something when there isn't um, a top-down government? You know, like. We've talked about, you know, abortion. Our perspective is that it's killing a human, right, or a living being, and it has rights, natural rights to life. And um, so it's wrong to do that. But what are you going to do to prevent it, right? How are you going to stop it? Because in a market, you know, there, there might be some ways to do it, but you can't, you can't like violently aggress against somebody, especially if you don't even know about it. You know what I mean? Like, Coming to the defense of another is certainly a thing, but how that mechanism would play out seems kind of muddy to me. Yeah, we talked about this on our, I believe it was the Don't Breathe episode, where there's a guy who has impregnated a woman, and his solution to prevent her from, or to keep the baby to term, is to essentially chain her up and force feed her and make sure she is perfectly healthy and whatnot. And then when she gives birth to the baby, he's going to let her go. And we discussed that a bit. And so if you're interested in that sort of discussion, check out that episode. But yeah, Daniel's right. I mean, what? no matter how you feel about abortion, and I am against it, I think it's immoral. I think if you voluntarily undergo sex with the potential of making a baby that's what sex is there's a chance you're going to make a baby there's always that potential there then you ought to accept the responsibilities that are derived thereof and um if you you know and i, I listened actually to tilden's uh tilden's episode on this recently where um even in the cases of rape you know you would punish the rapist but in what world would you punish the innocent little baby it seems like a strange thing so yeah um completely pro-life but what would you do to prevent such a thing would you chain a woman up would you prevent her from walking up and downstairs <laughs> would you i mean all all kinds of ridiculous scenarios you would have to go through to make it illegal now you could talk about punishing afterwards i think that's a more you know plausible scenario but um i don't know my thought my you know anytime you involve the state with their you know uh, idea of what justice is which is just putting someone in a cage for a certain amount of time or killing that person you know it doesn't necessarily jive with what my idea of justice would be or anybody else's idea of justice would be so um i would not be in favor of even any kind of after uh, abortion punishment at this stage uh in a in a free market type situation a proper proper proprietarian type world um i think the market would definitely come up with the best um solution and, and probably the best solution these days would just be ostracization you know you, you you talk to somebody who's had like three or four abortions and maybe you don't want to hang out with that person and maybe you make it known that you know you think what that person is doing is 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 not moral in any way yeah and, and the other side of that is you get the state out of the way and all of a sudden adoption becomes a lot easier you know it, it becomes a market for children which sounds awful but would actually be a better solution right you would have people who don't want to have kids who end up with kids trading and exchanging with people who can't have kids but want them and 
I don't see how that uh, that in and of itself is a bad thing compared right. to present you day. Get the objections. You get the objections that would be like, well, you know, if, if kids are just commodities that you can you know buy and sell and trade, well, then we can just harvest their organs and whatnot. Well, no, they still are people and they have rights. But if you're talking about a child going from a situation where they're unwanted to a situation where they're completely wanted and will be well taken care of, just because there's you know a market mechanism, as in money exchanging hands, but without the mechanism of the state, like even today, adoption is still a market mechanism. You got to pay a bunch of money, but there's this massive state involvement that makes it much more expensive. So there's really no argument to be made. Right. And you're not actually buying the child. You're buying the custodial rights, I, I would venture. You know, like, I, th I think that something like that would be what you're trading. You know, I'll exchange this amount of dollars for the custodial rights to raise this child until they are of age to take care of themselves. Absolutely. You can't just use them as like organ factories. Yeah. I think that would be immoral. Yeah. They'd still have all of their natural rights. But anyway, let's get uh, a little bit further into this because we are already eating up a bunch of our time. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the characters themselves? We've got Harry, who's the Daniel Radcliffe character. We've got Hermione Granger, who, when I read the novels, I always in my head thought he was Hermione. <laughs> uh, nice. That's, uh, what, Emma Watson? Is that her name? Yeah, I think that's her name. Yeah, and she, of course, is, you know, this big-time uh, he-for-she uh, super feminist. You know, men are bad kind of person. And in the movie, especially this first one, she is a little bit of a know-it-all kind of annoying person. Um, but she is uh, she's on the receiving end of some ostracism when people don't like she how she is, right? They don't like her being this little know-it-all, rub-it-in-your-face type of person. And she cries about it when she ends up having no friends. So, I mean, that's like super powerful, right? And she ends up changing her ways as a result. And this is um, counter to an example we had in another previous episode where we talked about the uh, the policy that was being recommended by some psychologist somewhere where they wanted to outlaw having friends or, or having a best friend. Like you have to treat everyone uh, equally in regards to friendship. So even like people who are uh, not pleasant to be around, you have to still be around them. And so that doesn't incentivize them at all to change their ways, to be more agreeable as a person, to attract friends. Do you remember that discussion? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. It seems very counter to actually developing social skills. So you're not supposed to declare a best friend because that seems to exclude any other potential friends, apparently, in their worldview. And you're not supposed to, you know, discriminate. So if somebody's being a bully or somebody's being really snarky or mean or just cruel, which happens when you're a children, you know, kids are still figuring things out. They're often reflecting what their parents are doing and behaving and acting. And to not give the kids a mechanism by which to evaluate their own behavior is completely retarded. It's completely asinine. You want them to learn. You don't want them to grow through life having everybody be your friend for no reason, no particular reason, no like virtue or anything. And then you're all getting participation trophies so you don't know where you rank anywhere else. So you don't know which love, know which areas of your life to spend, you know, time on to improve. So essentially there's zero feedback mechanisms to a child. And all the children are looking for is feedback mechanisms. Hey, look at me doing this. Look, mom, look, look, look what I'm going to do. Watch, watch me do this. Did I do good, mom? Did I? I don't know. I'm a kid. I'm just learning. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I look at their face. Mom's face looks happy. I'm doing good. Oh, mom's face looks anxious and upset and angry. I must have did something wrong. 
kids are constantly looking for feedback and to eliminate feedback from the, the entire equation. How are these people uh, child psychologists? I don't understand it. Yeah, I think it's par for the course because generally speaking, um, people like this who uh, have this expert, you know, central planning, top-down type perspective on things, like this is the policy we're going to impose on everyone else. That's their end result is they eliminate feedback. That's how... Uh, you have the bureaucratic style of operating. You know, you don't get feedback. You don't get profit and loss. You don't. You don't know when you're doing something wrong and when you're doing something right. You don't know what areas, like you said, where you have to improve. And um, it also reminds me of uh, the civil rights legislation. And this is a bit of a hot topic, right? Um, but essentially, the market response to somebody uh, being racist about something would be you don't go to their shop or their restaurant or whatever, and they're going to suffer as a result because they're not going to be as profitable as they otherwise might have been. Like they're foregoing profits. That's a feedback mechanism. But when you force everyone to associate with each other, you sort of eliminate that. And so people have to like repress those feelings and, and hide them so they can't be open about it. So, you know, they're probably going to like treat you worse in other ways. Right. Now, there is uh, one method for governments to get feedback. I mean, there is the voting method, which is a big giant blarb of nothing. It tells you almost zero about anything. But then there's also the bloated, super long term, well, we'll just commission a study to find out if this program is working or not. And we'll find out in about five years and we'll spend more money to tell if that bloated government program worked after about five years. And then we'll decide it's uh, it's not the same as a market mechanism where you get that immediate response, that immediate feedback back of people willingly voluntarily handing over their dollars to you or not yeah and, so, and even in that model you just described where they commission the study and then they find out oh well yeah it's not working out as well as as we wanted well it's never well let's shut the program down it's always no we don't have enough money we don't have enough staff we don't have enough authority and those are the things we need more of to make this program work that's right they always get the wrong end of the stick they don't understand why a thing is not working it's common with authoritarians. They don't understand the base level that authoritarianism breeds resentment. You know, it's weird. Why would people not like to be bossed around? Huh, I don't know. I like to be bossed around in my life, don't I? No, I don't. Nobody does. And yet authoritarians think that they can just do it to everybody else and everybody else is just going to be perfectly okay with it. That's essentially the base level of what we're talking about here. I mean, it, it shows up in myriad ways in the real world. But when you're forced to do something, you don't feel as good about it as if you voluntarily chose to do a thing. If I stick a gun to your head and say, give $5 to UNICEF, you're probably not going to feel as good about it as if you saw UNICEF and you're like, hey, they do good work. I'm going to give them five bucks. It's probably a little bit better feeling there in the feels. Well, no act can truly be virtuous unless it was voluntarily made, right? And of course, it's easily it's easy to be conspicuously uh, spending of other people's money. These are sort of derivatives of Rothbard quotes. But essentially, if you're not choosing to do it on your own, then then you're not you don't get the attaboy, you don't get the pat on the back. And that's one of the disconnects with voting uh, for politicians who promise all of these things is that it almost absolves you of the responsibility of doing something good for others on your own because you've already voted for somebody who says that they're going to go do it for me and it's already taken care of, right? So if anything, right. it disincentivizes and, and good behavior. Certainly it does. And the idea that voting is any kind of feedback mechanisms for politicians on whether they're doing a good job or not, like any any particular policy is hilarious. I mean, all it is is a general good or bad. It's not like direct feedback on policy X or policy Y, even if 
people did appreciate those policies or not, which I would unilaterally oppose almost every single one of them. Anyway, we should probably talk about Harry Potter in our remaining time. Yeah, yeah, we are running low on time and we're flogging this uh, bureaucratic stuff here. All right, so let's talk more about the troll because the troll, I, I had a couple of fun notes on that. So the troll gets let in by um, by Voldemort or Voldemort's uh, vassal and the troll is in the dungeon, right? And he's so stupid that he ends up confused about his gender and goes into the girls' bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, sure does. And uh, Hermione's down there crying her eyes out because of her friends from the ostracism thing that we talked about earlier. But Potter and um, the redheaded kid, uh, uh, Weasley, they they figure, oh, wait, she's down there. We got to go save her. And so they find her in the bathroom with the troll. And Potter, again, is useless in the troll fight. But then when the um, professors show up and the troll's like knocked out with a wand up his nose, Hermione lies to the professors and is like, oh, I went down here on my own because I thought I could take on the troll. So my question to you is, why did she bother lying when the legitimate story was fine? She could have just said, oh, yeah, I was in the bathroom. The troll came down. My friends came to try to save me. Like, what benefit is she seeking to achieve by lying in this instance? Yeah, it seems like maybe there was something lost from the book to the screen. I really don't know. The uh, It's not like she was hiding any particular thing. Like, she was in the bathroom for some nefarious purpose. She was just in the bathroom crying. People do that. It's a thing. It happens. When you uh, want to have a good cry and you want to be alone, oftentimes you'll go to the bathroom and go in a stall and lock the door and just sit there and be by yourself having a think and a cry. It's it's okay. I don't I don't know what she was hiding. Yeah, I feel like it was just a plot device to give her a reason to overcome the ostracism, to like have sacrificed herself in front of them in a way to like earn their pity <laughs> i don't know oh right as opposed to saying hey they made me feel bad so i was crying instead of saying that so then she kind of like gets it back in their good graces right but you think that i don't know i don't know i think that the real story would have been just fine oh these people came to save me look how great they are i'm very thankful to them yeah yeah seems like that would be a good idea <laughs> i don't know i think you're writing a better movie Oh well. But hey, let's 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 wrap it up in the few minutes we have remaining. I have a few points to make about this the, the final act, the final showdown. So Harry has Harry and his friends have gotten past the dog and they've gotten past the strangling vines and they've gotten past the chess match. And Harry is confronting the defense of the dark arts teacher, who is this evil turbaned guy, and he touches him and burns his skin. And the audience is going, what the hell's happening? I didn't know Harry had devil hands ability. He never casts a spell to say he's got like devil hands. But then after the story's all done and after Harry murders the guy, turns him into like ash, um, Dumbledore comes along and says, oh yeah, you know why that happened? And Harry's like, no, I didn't know either. And by the way, the diverted, uh, delaying the explanation completely takes the audience out of it. Like, we have no idea why this is happening. So all we can do is just sit back and watch. We have no, like, emotional investment. We need to know what the main character is capable of, why he's trying to do a thing, why he succeeds in doing a thing in order to really get invested in what's happening. If we don't know what's happening, we're just like, well, I'm just watching sound and motion and I'm just experiencing whatever it is. But then we get this ex post facto justification, essentially, that it was Harry's love, that he was loved by his mother that allowed him to touch this guy and essentially murder him with his hands. So my question is, has nobody that's been loved ever touched that guy before? 
He's never shooken hands with anybody who has ever been loved. He's never been brushed up against anybody accidentally that was ever been loved. Or is it just Harry? Because we're never giving that explanation. Is it just love in general? Or is it only Harry's specific love that Harry's specific magical mother, parents, whatever, imbued in him somehow that we see or don't see off screen? Do you have any ideas on this, Daniel? Yeah, um, it is very confusing. And, and I want to quibble with you on the word murder. Sure, the um, Quirrell guy dies as a result of his Medusa-like abilities to turn him to stone and ash and dust and whatever, but he did not intend to do it, so I don't think that there's murder there. Even though he he was being attacked and was per- perfectly within his rights to defend himself, um, he wasn't defending himself. He was just being useless, <laughs> you know? So I don't think it's necessarily a murder situation. But um, I think the premise is that his parents were both powerful wizards, even though they got killed almost immediately by Voldemort. But perhaps that was his mother's, like, spell as she was dying to transfer via this love for Harry the um, defense against the evils of Voldemort. Okay, but and in that your explanation is okay. Um, but my problem is that it needs to be explained in this way. Like this is never explicitly made. This is we, the audience never sees this. When when it happens, we need to get this weird ex post you know justification like explanation. It's not an ability that we know Harry has at all. It's not something he struggled to get to train. He just defeated the Dark Lord guy because. Well, he's Harry Potter, and he's special, just because. All he has to do is touch the guy, and the guy dies. Well, how is that like a heroic moment for anybody that is like training to be a wizard? He didn't need to train at all to defeat this guy. He could have just walked in day one, touched him with his pinky, and the guy turns to Ash. Done, done, done and done. No muss, no fuss. I mean, at least, you know, Luke Skywalker had to like train in the force a little bit before he could defeat Darth Vader. I mean, come on. Yeah, I agree. Yep, yeah. There's definitely... uh... Not a whole lot that Harry had to do, and and it goes back to our running theme of Harry just kind of stands there and doesn't really do anything. Um, but you know, Hermione sacrificed her, herself, uh, or at least her reputation, in front of the professors for them, and then Ron Weasley sacrifices himself in the chess match. So I think that the theme of the first movie is about sacrifice, right, and friendship, right, being there for each other, developing relationships. Um, by the way, the Ron thing, she's he's he's on the night, right? He's writing the chess piece. Yes. Why stay on the chess piece when he knows that the queen is going to take the chess piece, his knight? Why not just get off there the horse? Literally, there's literally no reason. And say knight to e4 and, you know, bingo, bango, you're done. <laughs> and then hop off. Yeah, well, no, there had to be a scene where he falls unconscious for some reason. Because then, who knows? I mean, it's not like he was in... I don't, I don't know, man. I, this this movie, it's one of the lighter, fluffier Harry Potter movies. The first two. I think they're the two done by Chris Columbus, and then another director takes over the third. I could be wrong about that, but I remember at one point, there's a serious turn to, you know, like a serious dark feel. I think it's with The Prisoner of Azkaban, whichever one that is. But, yeah, I don't know, man. Harry just seems to kind of go along. He's just kind of there, and it, it kind of disappoints you. You kind of want the protagonist to you know do something at one point he gets the key the magic flying key thing from the the the, the room full of cgi flying keys i have problems with that but, <laughs> the flying keys <laughs> well yeah it's terrible there's there's no tension in that scene there's no emotion on the characters there's no struggle he just gets it and then harry put it in there and then they leave and then all the keys like slam up against the door what, what's your issue with that story real quick all right so not only is the cgi kind of terrible in this movie and really the only magic is the illusion, sleight of hand magic of making us think that Snape, the sheriff of Nottingham, is the bad guy when it's really Quirrell, you know, because they, they do the distraction thing, right? 
But yeah, the misdirect. Yeah. yeah, the misdirect. But the keys stab into a heavy oak door and stick into the door. But just moments before, they're flying around, quote-unquote, attacking Harry. And they don't stab him. They don't cut him, maybe a little bit. But it's not, like you said, there's no real danger happening. There's nothing really happening other than a bunch of CGI action flying around the screen. Yeah, I got to completely agree with you. There was zero tension in that scene. It just seemed like it was wasting time until they got through the door. There, There was nothing Harry had to do. All he had to do was fly around on his broomstick, essentially in a, in a replication of the him finding the snitch. So we know that that's like his ability is that he's a good seeker. But there was no emotional response from any of the characters. And it seemed like a, you know, it seemed like a Jar Jar Binks kind of CGI moment. It just looked terrible and it was a terribly done thing. And I'm sure Chris Columbus isn't super proud of it. I'm sure he wanted to do that scene better. I'm sure if they ever remake these movies, hopefully it'll be done better. But um, in our closing moments, unless you've got something else, I really want to ask you, what the hell is the point scoring system in this movie? Oh, for the houses? At the end of the movie, Dumbledore, he's like uh, giving five points here and taking off five points there. And then he's like, I'm going to attract, give you 55 points here and 50 points there and then take away. It's like, it seemed to be completely arbitrary. Just whatever he was feeling like in order to make Gryffindor win. That's what it seemed like to me. Yeah, you know, in, in watching this, I was like, man, you're like sort of doing the Rico thing where you're punishing the whole group for the actions of individuals. But then I sort of reconsidered and I was like, well, if they know about it up front, then maybe it's okay, right? Because they're choosing to associate with each other in these houses or I don't know. I mean, they got randomly assigned by the, by the hat, but um, they do have a bit of a, a relationship with these houses, right? And so it's a way of having social pressure to keep um, keep each other in line, right? Because if right. the whole group, the whole fraternity, the frat house is going to be upset with you if you cost the, the whole group something, um, it sort of makes a bit of sense. But yeah, you're right. Dumbledore was just sort of willy-nilly, especially at the end, where the Slytherin have won. But he just puts his thumb on the scale and is like, oh, well, Hermione Granger, 50 points. Ron Weasley, 50 points. Harry Potter, 50 points. And now they're tied. And then he gives, um, uh, who's the dumb kid who uh, keeps screwing everything up? He gives him five points. The guy points. that turned into a stone or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for standing up to them, right? Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, was assault, brother. Uh, Hermione froze him, made him paralyzed right. when he was trying to stop them. I mean, that violation right there. But anyway, he got five points for that, and so, of course, they win. But it was almost like, um, who was that referee in the NBA who was, like, taking bets and, like, controlling the outcome of the game? Uh, Tim Donaghy. Oh, yeah. It's like that. That's what Dumbledore's doing. Yeah, he, he was definitely in the tank for Gryffindor. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if Gryffindor slipped him like, I don't know, whatever Dumbledore wanted, but he was definitely on their side. Even though, I mean, we know that, you know, any one house isn't like evil or good or superior to the another house. I mean, these are just arbitrary distinctions that this hat makes. So it's not like, I mean, yeah, what's his name is in Slytherin. What's his name? The, Draco Malfoy. Malfoy. Yeah. So we know like the bully is in Slytherin. But other than that, it's not like Slytherin is inherently an evil group of people or whatever. Eh, it didn't make any sense to me. It just, just struck me as bullshit. Well, well, she just wants the Gryffindor to win because that's the protagonists, and for no reason, whatever. Fine. It's a kid's movie. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Now, I did want to bring up one other thing before we get into our final summary and review, and that is the you know climactic Darth Vader scene where Voldemort says to Potter, there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. Together we could do extraordinary things, which is almost, almost verbatim the Vader offer. Indeed, yeah. I mean, they're, they have similar, uh, similar kind of character arcs, I would suppose, right? And have similar reasons 
for doing what they do. Although I'm not as clear on Voldemort's. I'm not as big a Harry Potter fan, so I don't know exactly his motivations. I know he went evil. He he sought like forbidden knowledge, right? And that's why he did what he did. I don't know. Like there's like a dark side to the magic. At one point in this movie, they talk about him going to the dark side. So it's very Star Wars-esque. But, and I guess, I guess Darth Vader did too. He also wanted some kind of like forbidden knowledge that the Jedi wouldn't, wouldn't allow him to search for is basically, you know, how to keep people alive and that sort of thing. And that's why he went to the dark side. So yeah, I guess some serious parallels here. Although I think Darth Vader has a nose. Although Voldemort has a nose in this movie too. So I don't know when, where he loses his nose. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a bunch of memes <laughs> about, uh, well, at least I've got a nose <laughs> related to Voldemort. Yeah. Uh, and one final question for you. The uh, spell that Dumbledore put on the Philosopher's Stone, which, like you just said, it, it, it does allow for um, more of a life force, right? Because previously Voldemort has had to live off of unicorn blood, drinking the blood of unicorns to be able to stave off you know dying um dumbledore had said his neat trick was that the stone could only be found by someone uh looking for it but who would not use it and because voldemort was going to use it for evil purposes you know it's essentially the ring of power right and this reminded me of um ron paul a little bit i mean he was a guy who ran for president or or um, adam kokesh uh who wants to run for president to shut down the federal government um I can see them, you know, being able to find it, but not intended to use it for aggressive purposes. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the only person you can trust with power is somebody who doesn't want that power. Someone who seeks it out is by their own actions, declaring themselves to be unfit to wield it. Because you even no matter, despite your noblest intentions, power is going to corrupt you. So someone who does not want the power, someone who will reject it is the only person who is suitable, I guess, to to have it. But, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like you said, you know, you elect Ron Paul and then he's just like, well, I'm not going to do anything. He was Dr. No. Or Kokesh, he's just like, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. Now, regardless of whether or not that he's going to succeed, um, that is what we're talking about here. Indeed, sir. Well, why don't we do our final summary, final summary and review before we wind down this episode of The Last Nighters, the first one ever on the Launchpad Media. So thank you guys for joining us from the Launchpad Media. We hope that you look for our back catalog at lastnighters.com. And uh, it even goes deeper than that if you know where to look. But let's get into the final summary. Yeah, welcome. Welcome, Launchpadians. So Harry Potter and the Philosopher slash Sorcerer's Stone. Um, It's kind of a long, slow, ponderous movie until it finally kind of gets going towards the end. Um, But it did have, you know, it kind of had to follow the book. And you got to establish this world that it's in. It's more of the saccharine version, even though you got people talking about torture and death and murder and all kinds of stuff going on. but, you know, I got to give him credit. Um, kid actors are notoriously terrible. There are a few good kid actors. I can remember when I first saw Dakota Fanning in uh, whatever movie she was in when she was like 10 or something. I was like, wow, that's a good kid actor. And you know it when you see one because there aren't that many of them. And these guys, they got better as they got older. But they still weren't super terrible in this movie. Um, I wouldn't, you know, go around nominating anybody for any awards, but they're watchable. It's not like cringeworthy. You found some decent actors who grew into pretty good actors. So there wasn't anything cringeworthy from that point. Uh, the CGI has not aged. There are definitely some some tension moments that are do not exist. I don't know. Maybe they're, the scenes are better in the book. I don't know. I'd never read the books. But I know that the Harry Potter series is a series that is beloved by millions and millions and millions of people worldwide. And there is a certain amount of magic to the movie and the series because as someone, including today on this podcast, has said, this, this book is really about friendship and it's about the magic of being friends and even if you're a pretty much do nothing like harry potter is pretty much the non-protagonist um 
through his actions of getting friends who are better at things and good at things, um, he can still succeed, um, even though he ultimately succeeds in defeating the bad guy through no fault of his own, which is a real bummer for somebody who's looking for a satisfying conclusion to a kind of a hero's journey type situation. Um, I like the I like my protagonists to learn to do things or to be able to do a special thing or to do a thing well and use that or learn a new thing that they use to um, to defeat the bad guy. Um, I don't like that it's just some inherent ability that he was born with. It's I think that's kind of a cop-out. Um, maybe he does better in successive movies. But um, yeah, anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that this movie is Okay, this movie is about as average as it gets for me. It's not a bad movie, but it's not a really great movie. Um, it's a fun movie if you're a fan, and if you're not a fan, I think you're going to be kind of like, well, it's a kid's movie. Let a kid watch it. I'm an adult. I've got other things to watch. Um, this movie is a 5 out of 10. Daniel? Wow, 5.0. I was actually thinking that as you were speaking that I was going to go to 5.0, so one of the uh, first matches we've had on the last Nighters here, and I, I wholeheartedly wow. agree with you. It's not the worst movie. It's not a great movie. It does set the scene. It's it's slow and ponderous and takes a long time to develop. It feels rather disjointed. I think I think that a lot of scenes uh, could have been cut altogether uh, because they didn't really establish a whole lot of stuff in uh, some of them. Like they just seemed like, oh well, well, let's shoot this scene because it's in the book and we'll fit it in somehow, even though it doesn't really help the narrative all that well. Um, and it seemed like they needed some more narrative in other areas. So you know, maybe they could have been better off like pairing it down and and then taking some of the other areas to make it make more sense. Um, and the CGI, yeah, it did not age well. It, uh, it looks really hokey. Um, we talked in a previous episode about how they're rebooting certain movies, and some of them don't even seem all that old. Like uh, you had mentioned, The Matrix might be rebooted. And I think the CGI in The Matrix still holds up uh, for the most part. Um, Harry Potter, not so much. So maybe, just maybe, somebody could look into doing uh, Harry Potter with better better stuff. I mean, you'd, of course, lose the, the child actors. You'd have to get new ones. But, you know, I think that you could make a tighter, better-looking version series of this going forward. So that's my summary and review. And, yeah, 5.0. So both of us 5.0 on this episode 27 of The Last Nighters. Crazy. Our very first tie score. Right. And I, I'm only tied because, you know, I, I didn't want to, like, then change it after you said your score because I already had one in mind. So... <laughs> No, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I think it's a perfectly average movie. Yeah, so. I'm not going to tip the scales with my, put my thumb on the scale like Dumbledore might have. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's been our show, everyone. So thank you, new listeners from the Launchpad Media. Uh, you can find more exclusive content at thelaunchpadmedia.com, and you can find our back catalog at the last night or not the last nighters, but www.lastnighters.com. Uh, we do appreciate you joining us, and we hope that uh, you come back next week where I think we're going to talk about the uh, movie The King's Speech, which was a recommendation on our Facebook page from a fan slash listener. So that is a movie that's uh, currently available on, I believe, Netflix. So if you're a listener and you want to get our analysis of it, um, do check out that movie on Netflix beforehand, and that way next Monday when our uh, next episode comes out, you'll be prepped and be able to uh, join us as we go through that movie and uh, give you some real unconventional film analysis. And uh, I'll say uh, good night from last night, and Robert can have the final word. Thanks for everybody for uh, listening to this episode, and uh, welcome to our new listeners. Hope you stick with us. If you like this sort of thing, we do this every week, so welcome aboard.
And we'll continue the transmission on the last night or actual Anarchy podcast for a few more minutes. Uh, Robert, I think that that went pretty well. We really deviated away from the movie for quite a while, but yeah, such did. is life. <laughs> um, and I did have some more notes you know, to go over. Yeah, me too. And so we could throw them out here on the actual anarchy uh, because actual anarchy, sure. you know, we, we go a little bit longer. Last night, we try to keep to an hour. Um, so I got a little bit more time and then maybe even some Kathleen Turner Overdrive if you're, if you're game for it. Oh, and by the way, er- everyone, be. we did have a whole bunch of uh, pre-show content. Um, this is a new recording setup that we sort of had to uh, resort to as our previous new recording setup was giving us all sorts of digitization effects where Robert was recording. And so now we're trying something new, but we have like an hour of us fumbling around trying to figure that out. So um, we'll give you guys access to that if you are a Patreon supporter uh, in the behind the scenes. Way to sell it, Dan. Behind the scenes, $5 a month level. And you can find that at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. Um, but yeah, give me, give me a few more of your notes and I'll give you some of my notes and then we can, uh, get into Kathleen Turner Overdrive after a little while here. Okay. Here's something that I forgot to mention, but the chess montage, the chess scene, I understand why they did it the way they did. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a chess board and, you know, and they set it up earlier that Ron plays wizard chess. Fine. Whatever. I'm fine with that. But the way they shot it and the way they did it, and I'm sure that it's probably the only way you can really do it because you can't just show it move by move. But when you reduce the action to a montage, which is what they did, you got a scene, you know, of a chess piece moving across and then it, you know, it chops another chess piece in half. It removes any and all tension because the audience isn't able to appreciate the effort involved by the main characters. We don't know if 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 Ron is doing any kind of brilliant moves. We just have no idea. All we see are chess pieces smashing into each other. We don't know if he's making mistakes and like, oh no, I got to correct for this mistake. Oh no, he took my bishop. Oh no, what am I going to do? We're just completely removed from that emotional interaction. So I, I, mean, I understand for time concerns to make it a montage, but I would have appreciated a little more tension. That's one thing that's really lacking in the, the third act and the, the climax of this film is tension where you don't know what's going to happen. At least in the, um, the strangling vine scene, at least there was a chance that you know somebody could die or get strangled or whatever. But in, in the key scene, the chess scene, and in the finale, in the finale Nothing. Nothing. I hopefully J.K. Rowling had like learned her lessons. I mean, this is a first book. I understand, but man, I think she just really fumbled on this uh, the, the third act here. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you there. Circle gets the square, and uh, you know the other thing I wanted to to mention, and I meant to bring this up in the last nighters portion of the show, is that we wouldn't have this series, this book series, this movie series, if copyright laws were as strong as people want them to be these days. Because she did borrow from a lot of different areas. And uh, this movie did make a billion dollars. And the whole franchise made several billion dollars. And so that clearly indicates that consumers desire this. And it would not have been possible if uh, intellectual property had been enforced as rigorously as they uh, attempt to these days. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know exactly how many people are clamoring for super old stuff to be protected. But she does borrow from, I mean, you know, old fairy tales. You know, there are griffins and unicorns and centaurs and, you know, all, all sorts of fantasy tropes that if, you know, the original creator still owned the copyright, you would not be able to use, much in the same sense that, you know, say Marvel owns Spider-Man and nobody else can make a Spider-Man movie. Then we're stuck with, you know, whoever has the rights to Spider-Man and whether they can make a good movie or not. Well, if we were stuck with only one, this almost happened with, um, we talked about this in our uh, Night of the Living Dead episode. 
where the Night of the Living Dead is open source, essentially. I mean, it's, it's copyright free. Anybody can make an, a, a zombie movie because of some weird technicality where they didn't put the copyright on the original screening of the Night of the Living Dead title card, something like that. And so therefore, you know, we've got The Walking Dead. We've got, you know, Love It or Hate It. you got, you know, Game of Thrones where there are like ice zombies. You wouldn't even be able to get anything where there's like a slow-moving, shambling, humanoid type creature that like wants to attack people because that would essentially be a copyright infringement on zombies. So we would just be stuck with whatever George Romero wants to make that year until he dies or whatever. But you wouldn't have this bountiful, you know, cornucopia of entertainment that feature zombies. Love it or hate it. But, you know, when people talk about, you know, Zom or, um, Disney buying up all the uh, copyrights, it's still still kind of silly because there's no such thing as a monopoly on ideas. Now, there's a monopoly, obviously, on, you know, the characters they, quote, own, but you can't always just come up with a new idea. But, yeah, you're right. The, um, the way that copyright laws are written, or at least how some people would want them, um, it does restrict your creative abilities significantly. That doesn't mean that it, that doesn't mean it's that ideas aren't infinite, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and I would refer people to uh, do check out that Night of the Living Dead episode that we did um, sometime uh, last October. I think it was for Halloween. And we also had a related article, and I'll post that article down below on the show notes page for this, which can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 84. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up was that there is some reference to Dumbledore being a badass wizard who defeated a dark wizard back in 1945. And I felt like that was uh, telegraphing that, you know, the whole World War II thing and, and the dark wizard would have been Hitler and Dumbledore would have been, I guess, Winston Churchill or something like that. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I want to, what my point of that is other than it, it being sort of subtly placed in the movie, it, it ties itself to that struggle of good and evil. And so it gives it a bit more of a concrete base, if you follow what I'm saying. Certainly. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a reason why people call, who, who's the, who's Johnny Depp's character in that Fantastic Beast movie? Um, it's, it's the guy you're talking about. It's the evil wizard that Dumbledore fights and defeats. But they call him, like, evil wizard Hitler. I mean, there's a reason why. So, yeah. Oh. I think that was very much intentionally done. Well, all right. Glad I picked up on it. My uh, my spidey senses were tingling. Oh, and, and speaking of the Spider-Man thing that you, you mentioned, I did see a clip of, um, I want to say, uh, a Bollywood version of Spider-Man. <laughs> and it is oh? absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I'll find a clip. Well, everything everything Bollywood does is incredibly ridiculous, <laughs> or at least most things. But I'll find that, and I'll post it down below, and I'll send it to you as well, Robert. But why don't we uh, wind this down? Um, so this has been, like I said, actualanarchy.com slash 84, our episode on Harry Potter. Uh, next week, we're going to come back at you with the, um, the King's Speech. So that one should be fun. Neither one of us have seen it yet, so we don't even really know too much about what it's about. But it is a recommendation from a listener. And if you've got recommendations, let us know. Um, you can leave us uh, notes on Facebook. You can send us email at daniel at actualanarchy.com or robert at actualanarchy.com. Or you can uh, leave us notes on YouTube, um, iTunes, leave us reviews. What's another thing? Oh, uh, on anchor.fm slash lastnighters or even anchor.fm slash actualanarchy, um, come to think of it. You can leave us one minute long messages and we can incorporate them into the show. So if you're interested in hearing your own voice on our show and us responding to your comments, uh, send it our way. We'll, we'd uh, love to have that as part of the show. It'd be a lot of fun. So anyway, uh, that's going to be it for me. I'm going to say good night. Uh, maximum freedom, everyone. And uh, join us next week. Peace out, homies.
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do